We understand that this debt can compromise your future and limit your creative ambitions. We do not want to see this happen. We want to empower your imagination, your creativity, and innovation. So we are pleased to announce today that Evan and Miranda, through their Spiegel Family Fund, have made the largest single gift in the history of Otis College. Their gift will enable you to repay your student loans. Would you like to try a college education? Own your landlord's house, take the family on vacation. Ava and her blessed fund can make your dreams come true. Here's all you have to do, my friends. Write your name and your dream on a card or a pad or a ticket. Throw it high in the air and should our lady pick it. She will change your way of life for a week or even two. Name me anyone who cares as much as Ava Perot. Ah, the performative benevolence of the capitalist class. Operating under the assumption that tech oligarchs won't be able to subsidize education in the entire country, the Biden administration is weighing options to potentially relieve millions of student debt holders. What will the process be? Who will qualify for relief? Can he do it with an executive order? What happens next? As of right now, Payments on outstanding federal student debt remain suspended until August, as it has been through the bulk of the pandemic. But the date is fast approaching when President Joe Biden will announce his plan going forward. It's become a hot-button topic on both the left and the right. It's created a generational divide with those who have shouldered student debt for most of their adult lives, looking at younger borrowers and asking, what makes them so fucking special? Proponents of debt cancellation on the left demand action because it alleviates enormous stress and burden on the lower and middle classes of the country. Those in the middle acknowledge the issue, but say that cancellation is regressive because it would also assist those who can afford to pay off their loans. So debt relief would be more just and appropriate. Those on the right are apoplectic because it's yet another in a string of unearned entitlements that those who took on debt did so willingly, and therefore, they're obligated. They can't all be right. Or can they? Unfucking the Republic is sponsored by Insane Level members, Cringy, Jennifer S., G. Wookie of Ohio, Eric Wagner 101, David MJ, Corey S., Cindy S., Asshole, Awesome and Asoke. This is a major podcast and we call it UNFTR. I'm fucking the Republic is the name that is not safe for work. We hate Reagan, Milton Friedman, Rupert Murdoch, and Matt Gates. Talk socioeconomics, global markets, politics, and race. Max, the host, is basic and admits he likes Miami Vice. 99 produces, also she's a vegan and she's nice. Manny Faces is the genius on the board behind the glass. Together they produce this unbelievable fucking podcast. 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 Oh, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, by the way, my name is Tom McGovern, and just know that I'm a hired gun. So if you're gonna hate somebody, please don't let me be the one. Now you have the details of the show and the entire cast. So listen to this unbelievable fucking podcast. So listen to this unbelievable, this unbelievable, so listen to this unbelievable, 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 this unbelievable
Chapter 1. So, how bad is it? The short answer is, it's really fucking bad. We're pulling from a number of resources, clips, and articles to frame the debate today, and the one we'll reference the most is a book that came out in 2021 titled The Debt Trap, How Student Loans Became a National Catastrophe by Josh Mitchell. Mitchell reported on the issue of student debt for several years and compiled hundreds of interviews with students, government officials, and executives from corporations that are a key ingredient to the mess. It's a very straightforward narrative with solid sourcing and documentation, and he even puts forward a few constructive suggestions for how to fix the problem going forward. So, like I said, we'll pull a lot from his work today. In terms of the issue itself, I'm going to focus on the areas of student debt that relate to undergraduate college and university. Now, over the past couple of decades, there's been a tremendous push from lenders to create programs for graduate students, most notably for med school and law school, and it's a huge problem. But we're going to narrow our discussion today to undergraduate degrees because it strikes more at the heart of equity and disparity in race and class. As for how large the problem is, like I said, it's pretty fucking big. I've seen pundits quoting pollsters who claim that it's not as bad as the left would make it seem because it rarely comes out as a top issue on poll calls. But think about the methodology of most polls, still being done by phone. And who the fuck answers their phone anymore? Older people. So, yeah, consider the source. Plus, you'd have to drill deep on a poll to unearth student debt as a direct response, but there are a number of implications of the problem that stem from student debt as a part of a larger issue. Declining income relative to the cost of living, an inability to afford a home, lack of retirement savings, etc. One contributing factor to each of these for many Americans is student debt. As Mitchell states in the introduction of his book, quote, Americans owe more money in student debt than they owe in credit card debt and car loans. Combined, student debt in the U.S. is the size of Canada's economy. Eight million borrowers are in default on a student loan as of this book's writing, end quote. So yeah, the problem is pretty fucking enormous. And the data trends worsen along racial lines as nearly 40% of all black student debt holders who started school in the 2000s have defaulted on their loans. There are so many socioeconomic factors that contribute to this statistic, but simply don't show up in polling data. But that doesn't make the data less real. This is unacceptable. Not only that, 65% of all jobs in this country require an education beyond high school. First-generation college students are two times as likely to report being behind on student loan payments. And 63% of borrowers who made payments with Navient uh, during the COVID forbearance still owe more now than they originally borrowed. To put the scope of the issue in dollar terms, as The Atlantic reports, quote, total student debt has grown in size, shooting up from $948 billion in 2012 to $1.6 trillion in 2022. But so has the number of student loan recipients from $38 million in 2012 to $43 million in 2022. In that time, the average debt burden has gone from roughly $24,700 to $36,800. And that per capita rise can be explained in part by the increasing number of student loan recipients attending graduate school. The question remains as to what shape a debt relief or perhaps cancellation policy would even take. 
There are clips of Bernie that go back years calling for debt relief, refinancing, system reform, and in more recent years, just full cancellation. Here he is just a month ago. Uh, my own view, as I've been saying for years, is I think it is appropriate at a time when so many of our younger generation are struggling that we should cancel all student debt. Now, during the presidential campaign, the issue of student debt was a big differentiator between the candidates. There was Pete Buttigieg. I hate you. Who was a human cudgel against the progressive preference of cancellation, repeating the fraudulent notion that it's regressive. Not to be outdone, Amy Klobuchar. I hate you. Adopted the same stance, which ultimately became the stance of Joe Biden. And I especially hate you. Although to woo over the progressive wing of the party and appeal to younger voters, Biden promised to do something in terms of relief. So the ideas on the left range from cancellation to some means-tested relief. All proposals contain elements of structural reform, but most of these proposals are murky at best. That's not where the attention and energy is at the moment. Throughout the episode, we'll touch on all of it, from debunking the concept of regressivism to structural changes in federal programs. Predictably, the right is pretty aligned with the message that any form of relief or cancellation beyond the temporary forbearance is a resounding fuck you to student debt holders. It's all part of a continuing war on entitlements, which is what the right wing of the country and conservative wing of the Democrats always seem to be fighting. It's just that the right is more overt in its criticism. Here's current Fox host, former judge, and always drunk Janine Pirro cramming all the right-wing talking points into one succinct statement. This asinine, I want to pay off student debt, is an insult to the senior citizens, to the people who pay taxes, to people who decide, you know, do I want to buy meat this week or pay for my medicine? That's hogwash. You got so many jobs, you got a great economy, let them work and pay off their bills just the way all of us do. Right, because the cost of living, health of the economy, available jobs and tuition are all the same as when you went to school in the 50s. As one might imagine, the corporate media, even media perceived to be left, is filled with lazy reporting on the subject. Here's reporter Megan Cerullo on CBS talking about the downside of people being able to pay their fucking bills. So could this canceling student debt loan, could it contribute to inflation? It could, certainly, for the, the, those folks whose um, debt is, is canceled, mm-hmm. presumably they'll have a little bit of a cushion in their monthly budgets, and that could lend to greater spending on, on goods and services, and, and that could stoke inflation. So that's another um, criticism or concern. Mm-hmm. This is the same argument conservatives make against direct child tax payments or ongoing stimulus relief. That consumers will suddenly go hog wild on goods and services and that will lead to inflation. An argument that somehow disappears when we give tax breaks to millionaires. Not to mention that it's been proven over and over again that the majority of families who experience a marginal increase in disposable income spend it on food, bills, and paying down debt. Now, God forbid we reduce the stress and pressure on the working poor. But I won't do that. Relief advocates like Senator Elizabeth Warren often make the point that many student debt holders don't have the additional credit or savings to buy a home, which is why so many younger people are putting off homeownership. Her argument is that trading student debt for better debt that builds equity and provides security is more favorable in the long run. But even outlets like The Atlantic say that the skyrocketing cost of housing, not student loan debt, is what's locking so many people out of homeownership. 
The same Atlantic article goes on to say that, quote, one could argue that debt forgiveness increases the wealth of non-white families, making it easier for them to support future children in attending universities, though it also acknowledges that the wealth boost would be marginal at best, however, given that the majority of non-white borrowers owe less than 40000 one year after graduation, end quote. Yeah, so fuck them, just let's not do anything for anybody, right? The fact of the matter is that since World War II, the nation has sold Americans, rightly or wrongly, that the path to prosperity is through higher education, and the government has done anything and everything in its power through multiple administrations to see that people have the ability to access higher education. The problem is, from the jump, they've gone about it the wrong way. UNFTR is also brought to you by Insane Level members W. Jeremy D., Tam Jam, Sam C., Ryan F., Rob Nasby, Prof G., Nick G. and Cassie LMM, Nathan Surst, Nathan Second, Nathan E., Michelle H., and Matthew. Chapter 2. The Best of Intentions The movement toward a four-year degree started immediately after World War II. The introduction of the GI Bill for veterans included stipends to attend college and begin retraining the American workforce. In order to take advantage of our newfound position as the world leader, every administration from this point forward made a concerted effort to educate and train workers. Of course, the vast majority of blacks and women were excluded partially because Southern colleges didn't accept black students and most women who served were deemed civilians and therefore ineligible for loans. Just don't teach that in schools, whatever you do. The idea that workers required a four-year degree has become so ingrained in our society that it's hard to recall a time when it wasn't a thing. Now that's beginning to change, but it's gonna take some time. In a CBS Sunday morning interview with Ken Frazier, the former CEO of Merck, who's partnered with the former CEO of IBM, he discusses the effort to eliminate the college requirement from as many positions as possible, and where it makes sense to do so. They're addressing the disparity in the country today between employers who say that there aren't enough applicants and applicants who say that they're ready, willing, and able to do the work, but cannot pass the company's screening filters. Here's Frazier. 80% of what we call family-sustaining jobs, $60,000 or more, generally speaking, require a four-year degree. And so companies screen out people no matter what their intelligence is, their curiosity, their work ethic, uh, their adaptability. But if you don't have enough people to fill all the jobs that we need in this country, I think we have to re-examine it. That's part of the rub. Whether a degree is required to perform most functions in today's work environment is beside the point. The fact is, the vast majority of jobs that provide a livable wage do require it. So the government had a major challenge on its hands coming out of the war. Pushing for as many people to get a degree was one thing. Affording it was another. So economists and policymakers started a debate that rages to this day as to how best to accomplish this. 
Now for this section, we will pull heavily from the debt trap in Mitchell's work to carefully walk through a complete history of student loans. It is impossible to attack this issue without the knowledge and understanding of how loans became such an integral part of American society. Let's start with some familiar unfucking territory to really warm up. Here's Mitchell. Quote, in a 1955 essay, the conservative economist Milton Friedman wrote that students should be treated like companies, with investors lending them money as a type of equity investment and the student repaying them with future earnings. End quote. Say it loud, say it with me, yo, fuck Milton Friedman! Yep, once again, we get to bring Uncle Poopy Butt into the conversation. But to be clear, he was hardly alone in making this argument. While European education models focused on providing higher education as a right and making it widely available, America pondered the exact opposite. Instead of looking at education as an investment, an imperative to society and national welfare, from the start, we treated it as a privilege. The fact is, we've been grappling with how to promote higher education to the public and then getting them to foot the bill ever since the Eisenhower administration. Truman and Kennedy would also weigh proposals to offer grants, tax credits, and funding to students to obtain a degree. But it was the Johnson administration that introduced the framework for the situation we find ourselves in today. Seeking to appease advocates for the poor, colleges and universities themselves, and hardline conservatives loathe to offer any sort of handouts, quote, Johnson developed a compromise, scholarships for the poor and loans for the middle class, end quote, writes Mitchell. Within this solution, we can begin to identify the seeds of the modern student debt crisis. Remember, this was at a time when even though Johnson sought to implement historic programs for his great society, there was little tolerance for exploding deficits. So when it came to who would actually be able to issue the loans themselves, Johnson faced an uphill battle in Congress. Even though loans were theoretically a moneymaker over time, the proposition of adding so much to the federal budget would create a short-term deficit that would blow too much political capital in Johnson's estimation. As Mitchell writes, quote, this is why Johnson didn't seek to simply expand the National Defense Student Loan Program, which drew money from the Treasury. Instead, Johnson turned to banks, end quote. This way, Johnson could keep student loans essentially off the government's books. Now, here's the key. Fearing that colleges would simply raise tuition to take as much money as possible, which proved to be a prescient concern, he wanted schools to have skin in the game. Remember this for later. Under his initial plan, schools and the feds would put part of the proceeds into an insured risk pool. This way, they both had an incentive to minimize defaults. After intense lobbying in D.C., an alternative solution was proposed and adopted, and the Higher Education Act was passed. It included scholarships for the poor and a loan program for the middle class. These loans for households earning less than $15,000 per year were guaranteed up to 80% if they defaulted, and they set an interest rate of 6% considered competitive at the time. The problem was that the banks were raising rates on other products faster than school loans, so they found little incentive to offer them despite the backstop of the federal government. In the meantime, college admission was growing due to the maturity of the baby boomer generation, so the colleges were flush with private paying students anyway. The whole thing just wasn't working. We're gonna need a new plan. Again, Mitchell, quote, banks needed more money, colleges needed more money, students needed more money. The government's foray into student lending was already a mess, producing unintended consequences. 
Congress had passed the two loan programs hastily with deference to banks and schools and little thought to the perverse incentives that might lead to even higher tuition and taxpayer costs, end quote. So Johnson turned to a young economist in the Department of Ed named Alice Rivlin, who sought to answer a crucial question, whether to give money to the students or to the schools. It was decided that students were better equipped to manage the debts directly, but there needed to be an agency to originate the loans. And as Johnson exited the stage and the Nixon regime began, a new corporation was established to provide a solution. Sally May. Rounding out our sponsors, today's episode is brought to you by Pro-Level members ER and Don. Chapter 3. Take it away, Sally May. This is probably the most important concept to understand. Remember, the government wants kids to get an education. It wants the schools to accept qualified candidates irrespective of their financial status. We all wanted an educated population and more advanced workforce as a result. But the government refused to carry the burden of debt on its books. So Sally May was established as a quasi-government organization that would sit off the books and pour liquidity into the banking system to be given out as loans. So the obvious question became, where would Sally May get the money to lend? To answer this, the government gave Sally May an unbelievable advantage. It allowed the corporation to borrow money cheaply, almost as cheaply as the government itself. As Mitchell writes, quote, Sally May was part of a circuitous route between lender and borrower. The Treasury Department gave money to the Federal Financing Bank, which lent to Sally May, which provided cash through warehouse advances and student loan purchases to banks, which lent to students who paid schools, end quote. I don't get it. 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 It was the ultimate Rube Goldberg financing scheme that only got worse over the years as corporate lobbyists and banks found ways to squeeze more and more out of the system and lay off risk. First came the abuse of for-profit private schools, which qualified for loans but offered a shitty product. So egregious was the abuse of the system from Jump Street that Congress was ready to pull the plug entirely and tell Sally May's executives to go fuck themselves. And on top of this, the government itself, under pressure of inflation and rising tuition, expanded grants and federal loans, which further jeopardized Sally May's position in the market. So things were looking really shaky over at the agency until a lobbyist named Mary Whalen came up with the solution to the problem that turned this into one of the most lucrative scams in history. Whalen and Sally May pushed the government to get even more involved under the theory that if it was in more control of the process and flush with cash, it could streamline the process and create a more efficient market. They just needed a little help and a little more independence. The idea was to institutionalize a form of arbitrage, whereby Congress guaranteed Sally May an additional 3.5% over its existing borrowing rate on every loan and to allow Sally May to tap into the market by offering shares of the company, essentially guaranteeing profits to Sally May and setting it free to operate in the so-called free market. With guaranteed profits, Sally May had no problem raising funds from both banks and colleges, and the company exploded. In 1983, Sally May officially went public, and as Mitchell writes, quote, in April of 1984, Sally May joined the New York Stock Exchange. 
The company earned a AAA rating from Standard & Poor's, the equivalent of a perfect credit score. Investors bid up the stock price, end quote. The more money they took in, the more they lent out. The more they lent, the more students took on debt. The more money the students were able to obtain, the higher colleges pushed tuition, and on and on and on. Now, the fuckery didn't end there, and you can't make this much guaranteed money without everybody noticing. Quote, by 1986, most states had set up nonprofit agencies to lend to students or to buy student loans from banks, performing the same task as Sally Mae. The agencies raised money by selling tax-exempt bonds, the buyer of which was often Sally Mae, which allowed them to borrow at interest rates below 7%, exceptionally low at the time. They would then collect interest rates of 9-14% to 14% on every student loan on their books, rates that had been set by Congress and that the students paid on their loans, end quote. Everything they did was arbitrage, guaranteed arbitrage. It was a thing of beauty for only two parties, Sally Mae and its investors, and the colleges that were all too happy to take the money lent to students. Sally Mae was having their way with the system and getting away with murder. Now, this did not escape the incoming Clinton administration that came from a generation that understood how fucked the system had become. So almost immediately, Clinton set Sally Mae in his sights and devised ways to bring the company to heel. Quote, the month after his inauguration, he successfully pushed Congress to create a permanent version of the direct loan program to compete against the guaranteed student loan program. As part of a bill passed by Congress months after he took office, the direct loan program would steadily grow and within four years originate up to 60% of all federal student loans, end quote. This was crushing to Sally Mae, but hope was around the corner in the form of a Republican-controlled Congress a CEO named Al Lord, who was determined to crush Clinton's plan, and a battery of lobbyists and Wall Street investors determined to keep pushing the envelope. The multi-pronged strategy was brilliantly executed. Here's how they did it. They removed the quasi-governmental status tie and began removing government-appointed board members. They created pools of student loan investments that were securitized, similar to how they bundled mortgages. They incentivized everyone in the company and board members alike with stock options to promote their offerings. They offered discounts in the market to incentivize students to use their programs instead of the government's direct programs. They essentially bribed schools with equipment to get them to switch their recommended platform. Then they went hard after the adult learning market and for-profit colleges like University of Phoenix to take advantage of the growing interest in skills and certificate learning. And they wined and dined college and university leadership. Taken together, these measures worked, and Sally Mae was once again crushing it. Quote, student debt took off. In 2000, Americans owed about $230 billion in federal student debt. By 2005, that figure had nearly doubled to roughly $415 billion, end quote. Around this time, Sally Mae lobbied for one of the shittier rule changes, making it near impossible to charge off student loans in bankruptcy. This doesn't even begin to explore the fuckery that ensued in the graduate market, which is a significant story in and of itself. Now, this isn't the end of our story, mind you. Sally Mae would continue to run afoul of Congress at various times. And during the financial crisis, when so many student debt holders suddenly began to default in their loans, the government actually had to bail out Sally Mae. 
The financial crisis would create an even bigger problem in the country as citizens struggled to get back on their feet. So in an attempt to promote higher education, as so many presidents before him had done, President Obama looked for ways to reduce the deficit while inducing more kids to obtain a degree. Quote, in 2010, he attached a provision to the ACA to eliminate the Guaranteed Student Loan Program, which since 1965 had ensured student debt loans originated by private lenders. Ending the program would save taxpayers $60 billion over 10 years. All federal loans from 2010 onward would be originated by the Treasury Department using Bill Clinton's direct loan program, end quote. But as Mitchell notes, by encouraging all Americans to go to college through debt if they needed to, he had opened up the spigot further, end quote. We're going to college for real? And the cycle continued. More kids, more debt, higher tuition, higher cost of living, fewer high-paying jobs, compounding interest, default, rinse, repeat. To make matters worse, states were in such dire straits that they intensified the decades-long trend of cutting funding to state and community colleges, prompting them to increase the percentage of private tuition dollars required to attend. Underwriting standards were loosened to allow poor families, particularly those of color, to obtain more federal loans. Terms were extended. Interest would continue to grow. Quote, during President Obama's two terms, student debt doubled to $1.3 trillion. These years showcased his and the nation's unquestioned faith in higher education as a vehicle for societal change, upward mobility, and achieving the American dream. But well-intentioned policies led, once again, to detrimental outcome for families, end quote. Of course, nothing would change during the Trump years, save for forbearance during the pandemic that continues today. And that's how we got here on Fuckers. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. Coffee break! Hey, fuckers. It's audio editor, engineer, and sound design maestro, Manny Faces, with a quick break to remind you that in addition to all of the support we receive through memberships and one-time donations at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR, you can support Unfucking the Republic by purchasing our actual coffee. We have four distinct unfucking blends, each carefully and lovingly roasted by Amy Wallace from Native Coffee Traders on the Puspatuck Reservation. Buying our unfucking blends helps support her and her team on the reservation and the work we do here on the show. We now return to the program. Thank you. Chapter 4. The Tuition Death Spiral I want a Fulbright and a Rhodes. I write financial software codes. But that's a challenge I've outgrown. How many yachts can one man own? Some say that I'm a pompous creep. Somehow I don't lose that much sleep. Why bother with false modesty? Harvard's the perfect place for me. Nearly everyone who studies the issue of student debt acknowledges that colleges have a big part to play in this mess. Mitchell puts it in very simple terms. Quote, another theory better explains why public college tuition has risen so fast. The idea, outlined in the early 1980s by a former college president named Howard Bowen, is simple. Colleges will find a way to spend money no matter how much of it they have, end quote. And he's right. They're right. We sold the idea of college with great success in America. Then we opened up the lending floodgates to both private and public institutions. 
We relax standards enough to allow nearly everyone to qualify for some money, which colleges took as a signal to increase spending and raise tuition, thereby necessitating larger and larger loans. Every recession or economic downturn resulted in defaults or declining income that made loans more difficult to manage. The big economic downturns had even more deleterious effects as states slashed state and community college subsidies, forcing public colleges to raise tuition to fill the gaps. And the cycle continued in a death spiral. Moreover, inflation outpaced wage growth for even middle-class jobs, creating a squeeze on every aspect of the economy except for the very top-earning families. The private institutions, with the promise of better job placements and the ability to attract wealthy, full-pay candidates, determined that there was no limit to the amount of increases they could push through. All the while, they aggressively pursued donations from wealthy individuals and were raising money on their private investments into companies like Sally May. Which is why a university such as Harvard has a sticker price of $75,000 per year, despite having a, wait for it, 53 billion-dollar endowment. They collect it because they can. And the more money they raise and spend turning campuses into Disneyland, the more the public colleges feel the need to raise funds to compete. And the beat goes on. But they're not alone in their greed. I've dropped some charts into Substack that I'll highlight here to illustrate how fucking amazing the Sally Mae business model is today. Remember, we're coming off a pandemic so when you hear these figures, they're even more astonishing. In 2021, Sally May had a net income after taxes of over $1.1 billion. The company has returned 143% on investment since 2018, which is way ahead of its peers. And their top executives are paid handsomely for their cunning. In 2021, their CEO pulled in $7 million in total compensation. Sally May's president, hauled in $2.3 million, and their executive VP made $2 million, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. But redonkulous executive comp is nothing new these days, even though most people still don't understand that Sally May is a publicly traded for-profit corporation. Which brings us to who exactly their shareholders are. While there are a couple of institutional shareholders that own more than 5% of Sally May, the threshold that requires them to list their holdings publicly in their proxy statement, I want to draw your attention to one in particular. BlackRock. BlackRock owns 8.5% of Sally May. The same BlackRock that is buying up rental properties across the country, making it the largest single landlord as a result. That BlackRock. That BlackRock that owns the second largest stake in Sally May. Not only is this shitbag company partially responsible for spiking rents, they're the beneficiary of public student indebtedness. If there was ever an example of a predatory company, they are it. And isn't this an indictment of our educational institutions in general? Greedy private colleges, public colleges trying to keep up with the Joneses while losing state support and funding, a private company competing with the government for student loans by lobbying for every advantage possible, hideous predatory investors sucking the savings out of the pockets of millions of American borrowers, Defaults through the roof, rising inflation, rising interest rates, the inability to discharge student loans in bankruptcy, and a system so fucking complex that one side thinks we should just cancel it all and the other thinks we should just let it ride. <laughs> I'm a fucking mess. <laughs> Chapter 5. To forgive or not to forgive? That is a question. Litera multum 
ile et teris iactatus et alto. We superum, saiwai, memorum, nonis, all that's known, history and science, overthrown at school, at home by blind men. Doubt them, and soon they bark and hound you till everything you say is just another bad about you. Secondly, I am considering dealing with some debt reduction. I am not considering $50,000 debt reduction, but I'm in the process of taking a hard look at whether or not there are going to, there will be additional debt forgiveness. So here we are to forgive or not to forgive. In the coming weeks or perhaps days, we're going to learn of Joe Biden's plan. Odds are it will be a means-tested partial forgiveness and some recalculation of interest on particular loans. Here's a couple predictions. First off, they'll fuck it up politically, meaning that it won't be enough to garner a groundswell of popular support that delivers for Democrats in the fall. And on the flip side, it's going to give Republicans key talking points to say that Democrats are robbing taxpayers by letting the soft generation off the hook another participation trophy. The other prediction is that nothing structural will change, and we're going to be arguing about this well into the next term, and the one after that. Now, it's cynical, I know, but that's just how bad this White House is. Much of the frustration on the left has to do with this notion that forgiveness is regressive, but this idea is inconsistent with the facts. Here's Dr. Jaleel Mustafa Bishop offering a response to this very question posed by Senator Elizabeth Warren in a congressional hearing on student debt. What does the data say about who borrows money to attend college? Are they generally very wealthy? I think the data is quite clear that those who borrow student loans are not wealthy, that they are not people who have high levels of assets, um, that more than half of, of borrowers with student loans um, or more than half of student debt is held by families with zero or negative household health. Um, and, and especially when we're looking at communities of color, where, again, we see almost 90 percent of black students borrowing student loans compared to 68 percent of white students. So the idea that student loans are carried by wealthy families, I think, is something that doesn't show up in the data. Centrist establishment sources like The New York Times and Brookings are aligned with the false regressive narrative, though, and that is not helping. A recent op-ed in The Times pushes for income limits to help the most in need. Quote, most debt is held by higher income households, and so any amount of universal forgiveness will benefit them disproportionately. In fact, the growth of student debt for graduate school, held by students whose degrees will offer them the greatest future earning potential, is a major driver of the overall student debt. End quote. This entire fucking narrative is built on the false premise that most debt is held by higher income households. It's not true. It's further built on a concept pushed by Brookings that, quote, student loan borrowers are better off than other Americans, end quote. So these ostensibly conservative institutions that promote themselves as liberal built on these false premises to push for means testing. Here's a passage from the Jacobin that explains the fundamental flaw of this logic so beautifully. Quote, have you ever noticed that means testing proponents don't want means testing for giant income tax cuts, tax deductions, corporate subsidies, bank bailouts, or any other government handouts to the rich? Have you ever noticed that demands for means testing only emerge during debates over social programs for the non-rich? Yeah, that's the tell. The one that lets you know that means testing isn't anti-oligarchy, it's pro-immiseration and otherization. Means testing is a way to take simple, universal programs and make them complicated and inaccessible. 
in practice, calculating exact income levels and then proving them for eligibility means reams of red tape for both the potential beneficiary and a government bureaucracy that must be created to process that paperwork. They are let-them-eat-cake Austerians who see means-testing as a technocratic way to weaponize red tape in service of limiting help to the poor. End fucking quote. Ouch. This is so wonderfully stated. Tying up forgiveness programs in red tape that few understand is a signature move of today's liberals. It's why the child tax credit direct payments were so effective at reducing poverty as opposed to the child tax credit. On paper, they're the same thing, except the latter is just more complicated and therefore inaccessible. Take, for example, the current path to student loan forgiveness available to public service employees. Liberals hold this up as an example of good forgiveness, forgiveness that works, the model. So why do such a ridiculously low percentage of public service employees actually have their student loans forgiven? Well, let's read directly from the government aid program text. <sighs> to qualify for the PSLF, you must be employed by a U.S. federal, state, local, or tribal government or nonprofit organization. Federal service includes U.S. military service. Work full-time for that agency or organization. Have direct loans or consolidate other federal student loans into a direct loan. Repay your loans under an income-driven repayment plan and make 120 qualifying payments. To ensure you're on the right track, you should submit a public service loan forgiveness PSLF and a temporary expanded PSLF, T-E-P-S-L-F, certification and application PSLF form annually or when you change employers. We'll use the information you provide in the form to let you know that if you're making the qualifying PSLF payment. This will help you determine if you're on the right track as early as possible. Suspended payments count towards PSLF and T-E-P-S-L-F during the COVID-19 administrative programs. If you have a direct loan and work full-time for qualifying employer during the payment suspension administrative programs, then you will receive a credit towards PSLF or T-E-P-S-L-F. The period of suspension is that you made on time monthly payments in the correct amount while on a qualifying repayment plan. To see these qualifying payments reflected in your account, you must submit a PSLF form certifying your employment for the same period of time as the suspension. Your account of qualifying payment for PSLF is officially updated only when you update your employment certifications. Digital signatures from you or your employer must be hand-drawn from a signature pad, mask, finger, or by taking a picture of the signature drawn on a piece of paper that you can then scan and embed in the signature line of the PSLF form to be accepted. Type signatures even if made to mimic a hand-drawn signature or security certificate based on signatures are not accepted. No, in grace, in school, in certain deferment, or balance, and bankruptcy statuses are not eligible for credit towards PSLF. Qualifying employment for a PSLF program isn't about the specific job that you do for your employer. Instead, it's about who your employer is. I hope that was as painful to listen to as it was to read. Because that just shows how fucking stupid this process is. That's, that's means testing, right? That's means testing to prevent a regressive type of reform. It's just fucking bullshit. But it's utterly fascinating, and it's obviously maddening. Having gone through the system myself, I've seen how Byzantine and frustrating it is. And it's so easy to be swept up in it. And there's a sense of groupthink about the system. That's why there are 43 million of us dealing with it. For those who have paid off their school loans, I can certainly understand the what the fuck sentiment surrounding the forgiveness concept. And that's why I thought it was important to do a deep dive into how we got here, as we do. Because the circumstances have changed and the system has become increasingly corrupt and out of control, all stemming back to Milton Friedman and others who just viewed education differently. While he called it an investment, he saw it as a personal investment instead of an investment into our people. And that's really, truly what this is all about. Biden's going to do what he's going to do, and it will be marginal and somewhat helpful. But it's clear that it won't be enough because, as you can tell after this episode, the roots of this problem are deep and entrenched. As Mitchell concludes, quote, Canceling student debt would help borrowers, but it wouldn't solve rising tuition, low-quality programs, and indebtedness for future students. The government is on track to lend another $1 trillion to students and their parents over the next decade. Without reforms, the country will end up where it started, 
deepen student debt with another wave of defaults, end quote. In order to fix this system, unfuckers, there has to be a fundamental shift in both mindset and policy. The mindset we have to change is similar to healthcare and welfare. Supporting your population, especially when you have the means to do so, doesn't create a sense of entitlement that fosters laziness. There's just no data to support this idea. Educated and healthy people strive to do more and do better in their lives and in society. Now, without this shift in mindset, it will be nearly impossible to pursue structural change to the way in which we promote higher education in this country. Now, another shift in mindset is on the employer side. To understand that many jobs in the modern economy don't even require a college degree. Continuing corporate-sponsored education can and should be part of the equation. Now, don't get me wrong. Some college for everyone is a very good thing because it allows young people the time to mature and find their lane. And to that extent, one of the most significant policy changes that we have to adopt is free state and community college. Of course, these colleges need to be fully funded by the government in order to do this, so the burden has to shift from consumer to provider. But these colleges also need to be able to compete against the private institutions that have so much fucking money that they can raise incentives to not just attend, but also to work there. So it's a delicate balance to provide enough funding for free college and competitive teacher salaries because colleges will indeed spend money just to spend it. And one of the ways to close the exploding tuition gap is to recognize that private colleges are a choice. So we can't concern ourselves with what they do as much as we can the public colleges. But if we make the public colleges more competitive and less expensive, this will put market pressure on the private colleges to part with their egregious endowments and slow the pace of tuition growth. That needs to happen. But the other way is to force private institutions to have a little skin in the game. I'm all for federal loan programs, but the character of these loans and securitization of them has to fundamentally change. And on this, we already have the fucking answer. It was Lyndon Johnson's original idea of an insurance pool that colleges and the government pay into to cover defaults. The linchpin of this idea, however, is to drastically cut the interest rates on loans. And this works in a couple of ways. First, like I said, I'm all for forgiveness at any level. 10 grand, 20 grand, 50, whatever. Deal with the problem at hand. But if it's 10, which I suspect it will be, then the federal government should refinance the outstanding balance of every loan out there at the federal funds rate. Let people borrow at the same rate of the banks and extend the terms of the loans out of the gate. This will reduce the defaults eventually anyway, which would pay for whatever you would have lost in reducing the interest rates. This would dramatically reduce monthly payments for the consumer. Moreover, to drive the nail in Sally May's coffin, refinancing in this fashion should be available for all private loans as well. Fuck them. Sally May needs to be put out of business. Leave BlackRock holding the bag. Who gives a shit? Other sensible policy measures that are easily achieved are to streamline the public service debt relief process and to revert to when it was allowable to discharge student loans in bankruptcy. The latter policy should never have happened. That was just pure greed pushed by corporate lobbyists. And for God's sake, stop with the means testing. It's wrong, stupid, and actually mean. Wealthy people don't carry student debt and stop worrying about the feelings of people who paid off their loans. For every one of them, there's another older person 
sometimes senior citizen who, believe it or not, is still paying theirs off and struggling. In fact, did you know that there is an entire segment of the senior population having their social security checks garnished to finish paying student debt? I mean, come on already. Just knock it off. Let Janine Pirro cry in her Chardonnay. This isn't about her. Put Sally Mae out of business and make colleges put skin in the game. Offer some debt relief today and fix the system for tomorrow. Let the students pay what the banks pay. Here endeth the college lesson. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Hoo-ha! Welcome into post-show musings. It's just me and 99. Burning it up. We're not burning anything. We should be burning a fatty right now. I feel good after that episode. It's so funny that this I've had this on the on the docket for so long, and I got this book a little while ago, and I was plowing through it, and I was like, this book is really fucking good. And I started gathering all the articles, and then I just became obsessed with the subject, as you know, as happens, and it's all happening right now. So, this is the program from the Biden administration is going to drop like literally any day, and our fuckers are just going to have so much context to understand like where the deficiencies might be when the program drops or maybe excited. Maybe he just fucking does the right thing and fixes this and introduces amazing legislation. Who knows? But at least everybody will know what the fuck is going on when it happens, right? Unfuckers, man. Dig it. Woohoo! Hey, 99. Hi. I am all lit up. I can tell. But in so a, fun. Usually you don't end these smiling. I know. I know. What You know, I, I think a few days ago, so some insight into the writing process. These ideas ruminate and ruminate and ruminate. And then articles come in. Unfuckers will weigh in and send us some good resources and we'll kind of comb through them. We'll just start adding to a document and adding to a document. And then I'll go and and get whatever I think is the most recent and reasonable book, if it's a current event, on the subject and just start putting it all together. But then I walk and I walk and I walk and I walk and try to like formulate all of the bits and pieces of the puzzle to see if I can frame it in my mind. And a couple of days ago, it really kind of came together that I always had the idea that the interest rates were stupid. The interest rates were just out of control. Why the fuck, even at six and change, which I think is what it's at right now on a federal direct loan rate, when you add in the origination fees and then bundle it all together, the effective rate of a loan on a 10 year becomes like seven and change. Banks can borrow it like 1%. Why would they be concerned at this being a money-making proposition? And then all the hand-wringing around defaults. It just seemed like such simple finance to say, well, reduce the fucking rates and refinance everything like you do for everything else. Maybe even extend the terms by another five years. Because if that prevents 40% defaults, which is what we're under right now, the money you're losing from chasing people around and the bureaucracy of having all these collection agencies and fucking up people's lives and not being able to discharge it in bank that social cost and actual hardline dollar cost would just be done away with by reducing the goddamn interest rate. Why is this a money-making endeavor for the federal government? I understand Sally Mae. Fuck Sally Mae. But why would the feds be wanting to make money on this? That's so stupid. It's just, it's, it's perverse. It's the wrong incentive. 
So I got that part of it. But then the idea of forcing the colleges to put money into that risk assurance pool and then making sure that we invested in the state and community colleges so that they were as competitive and in some cases prestigious as some of the private institutions, they'd have to reframe their entire mindset around tuition. It would just, it would just force them to be more competitive. So in two ways, one, you're satisfying all of the social democratic tendencies of investing into the public through proper programs, and you're satisfying all the free market shills out there that are like, you should let the markets determine. Well, we will let the markets determine because it'll be determined by the amount of money that people have to spend. And those private colleges will just have to do better and be more effectively, but there will be more competition in the marketplace. Not everybody can go to a state college or a community college because you, you would hit a natural ceiling. So it actually forces competition through proper regulation of the marketplace and makes it a more pristine market. So when I had that, it's not an epiphany and people have thought of this before, but it's like when you pair that up with the sensible financing options, it's like, holy shit, this touches on every single hot button. This is the type of big thinking legislation and vision that we actually need and the AOCs of the world and the Bernies of the world, I'm actually not hearing part two of that equation enough. They're not speaking to that enough. They're just focused on alleviating the debt burden. And I get that. And I think it's magnanimous and it's wonderful. But they're not thinking about the next step of fixing the structural changes, which has to happen at the exact same time. It has to happen in lockstep. They have to be done together. You can't just be like, all right, we fixed this one problem. Now let's form a fucking committee. And maybe in a couple of years, because as they said, like a trillion new dollars are going to be minted over the next fucking decade. And we're going to wind up in the same position all over again. And then you'll create the same expectation among students that you've created with the big banks that are too big to fail. Don't worry. I'll take out this loan because it will be forgiven. But if you get a resurgence, let's say it's Ron DeSantis coming in. Do you think that these programs are going to fucking hold? There's no goddamn way. So you have to legislatively fix this stuff at the same time. This is the time to make it happen. And I'm just so excited that, anyway, sorry. Don't apologize. So let me ask you this. In your mind every day, grocery shopping, putting gas in your fucking car, you know, getting back and forth to work, trying to have enough disposable income to actually have a life and go see a stupid jam band that you like and all those other things we talk about. Student debt is just sitting there, is it not? Yeah, it's, you know, good part of my paycheck of one of, you know, one of my paychecks in the month just goes there. And will continue for how long? I think we have it set to 10 years right now. Right. And then if the federal's approved, I still have private loans. Right. Hey, unfuckers, you guys want to create a GoFundMe? <laughs> just Go kidding. Fund 99. Don't do that. No. Give it to other people who need it more. But here you are, right? You would be considered kind of the prototype for this investment, right? Went to good schools. Beautiful young lady. Beautiful, right? Intelligent. I wouldn't say I went to a good school. (laughs) I I went to a school. You went to two good schools. Uh, Sure. I mean, they were fine. I I didn't go to Stanford. But you came out with a skill set. You were immediately employed, right? Yeah. What job? What job are you on right now? My, of post-college? Yeah. Two. Second job. You've demonstrated that, you know, stick You can rise through the ranks. You're on a great career path and trajectory. And yet still, 
You live in a really expensive area. Everything else is rising around you. And it just gets harder and harder to do other things that would alleviate stress and better your life. No? No, 100%. I have no money. <laughs> I have no money. Insane. <laughs> I'm laughing, but it's true. I have no You're money. laughing through the tears. It's yeah. insane. Yeah. I hear it from my dad every every day. <laughs> You know, and I so I feel it on the same side now with my kids, the, the enormous burden that we have to shoulder in you know paying for education. Again, it's a choice. We're making these choice. We're electing this choice. We have fully bought into the American dream. Yeah, but I it's don't, a nightmare. I don't think it was as much of a choice to not go to college, even when I graduated high school. I remember one girl in my my class was like, yeah, I'm just not going. It's not for me. And we were all like, what the fuck's up with her? But honestly, in retrospect, I was like, good for her. And she could always go. She's right. just not immediately going. When I graduated, it was trendy, let's say, to, to do the community college for two, which mm -hmm. was like starting to be the more responsible thing because at least you can get an associates or just get all your gen eds out of the way and all that stuff. So that was happening, but not going to college unless you were immediately going to a trade like my friend did cosmetology in high school, so she owns her own salon now. Uh, the aforementioned salon in this week's post uh, show notes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I know other people who did like, who did like mechanic stuff and they went right into that trade. Mm -hmm. But just not having that wasn't a thing. Now I think it is more of that. But you, you bring up a great point about somebody going into the trades. Like, yeah, you can go to the vocational school, you can get a trade and go into it. But the reason you have to do that stuff now is because we've destroyed the unions in this country. Mm. Because you could have come out of school and, and gotten an apprenticeship and worked for five, six years as an apprentice and then become a full-fledged union member in a trade and then have a, like a, a really fantastic career in life with a lot of protections and benefits. So you can't destroy that as part of your system and your society and then say to people, just supplant that with with loans to go better yourself through a trade school that could be a ripoff for, you know, for profit trade school as well. Even now, when I looked at certificate programs or graduate degrees, it's, it's robbery. Yeah. Even sometimes these small little leadership courses, mm -hmm. like two grand. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what? Why yeah. would I pay you to? I don't have to. First off, where is it coming from? <laughs> Secondly, and those why? schools will tell you that these not are even, massive money makers for yeah. them. That's it. Like the Cornell DEI program mm -hmm. specifically, what is it like six thousand dollars? Yep. And I'm like, it's unless I work for Google. Small businesses don't have that type of just. They don't. A lot of them don't put that away. And right, <laughs> I can't afford that. So it's just, it's a nightmare because I do want to learn more. I'd love to, I don't want to go back to school because I don't want to deal with like homework, but I'd love mm -hmm. to like learn in a constructive fashion, but I'm still paying off my undergrad, which I didn't learn that much in it. <laughs> Most of the skills I have, I learned after. Right. Well, and so we, you hit on a couple of important things there. One is touching on the graduate degrees and those certificate programs and all that, whether it's the, you know, University of Phoenix, which I'm sure has been unfucked on, you know, brilliantly on other podcasts and, and the, but the graduate issue is a very big issue and it is a seismic chunk but not in volume in dollars because the dollars are so high but the population is smaller so when they talk about getting rid of this and it would be unfair to a certain segment of the population please go fuck yourself it's it you're talking about people you know taking on medical debt or, or debt for law school not everybody that comes out works at a white shoe law firm 
in the fucking in no, city like where you make hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. You could be an environmental. You could be an environmental advocate. You could be um, uh, you could you'd just be a criminal defense attorney and be a public defender. This isn't suits. Right. Thank you. So, I mean, most jobs have not risen, even even some good quality jobs in healthcare and law have not risen in, in terms of pay scale to the standards that would be required to pay off these massive student debts. So that is another whole topic in general. And I didn't yeah. want to touch on that because, again, has less to do with the promise of a four-year degree and the idea of equity and mobility that we have in this country. It's a, kind of a different subset of the topic, yeah. but it's still an important one. But I think there's some sort of societal fallacy that exists still about go to school, become a doctor, become a lawyer, you're going to be rich. And it's yep. like, have you have you met doctors these days? They're A, they're underpaid, they're overworked. I mean, the pandemic was just, and you come out of school, you have to do residency. So it's all geared towards the specialists yeah, you, and the you surgeons. You become a plastic surgeon, right. you become, I don't know, a brain surgeon or whatever, and that's where you make your money. But like the doctors you see every day and the, the nurses fucking working their goddamn asses off, mm -hmm. they're not making any money and it's fucked up. A good friend of mine who sadly passed away a few years ago was an eye doctor. And he said, I have to give Botox now in order for us to make as near the amount of money that we, we used to I make. Botox? And well, so he's he has these older people coming in and it's a huge thing in ophthalmology. Hmm. He he said, listen, I have to in, in three days in the office doing procedures, he's got two office days and he's got three days in the office doing procedures. He has he said, I'm I'm sticking a needle in the eye of fifty five patients in a day. There's no bedside manner in that process. I'm used to talking to people about their grandkids and what have you. He goes, and now I get all these people coming to the office saying, well, the only way you're really going to make any money here is if at the same time you say, you know, hey, Mrs. Smith, I can tighten up your eye bags with a little fucking Botox. And he's, this is where his industry was going. This, you know, again, this is a few years ago, but I know that to be the case today as well. All of these doctors with side hustles and projects that are private pay because it's really hard to make a living as a general practitioner in any or, or as a, even a practitioner in a specific discipline, if you're not one of these like highly, highly touted surgeons or specialists that just happens to get much, much higher reimbursements or private pay. But you touched on another thing, the assumption. Now you and I grew up in the same area, the same part of the world. It was a given that we were going to college. Mm -hmm. It was understood, it was an assumption, right? The outlier, and I remember my friend from high school that didn't go to college right away, and then eventually went to college. It, it was 100% matriculation. But I'm curious to hear from unfuckers that live in parts of the country where it really is more of a, well, first of all, I want to, but I can't because we just can't afford it. That is a huge part of this population, which is why this is a crisis. But there are people that still live in parts of the country where it's just not assumed. Right? And, and it's one of the things where I do check my privilege at the door when putting something like this together and really wanted to be specific about the idea that private colleges, those higher end institutions, that is a fucking choice. Mm -hmm. And we can't necessarily cry in our Chardonnay over people that elect you know, for that choice because it's an assumption within their social class that they're going to go to a great school and move forward and what have you. That's not what we're trying to fix here. But we are trying to reduce the pressure in those institutions, you know, from raising tuitions to these just ridiculous heights 
by creating a more competitive landscape there in the public universities as it used to be. We're never going to get to a model like they have in Europe where you just fucking go to college or Canada where you just go to college and uni. you can live. They go to uni, not they, college. Oh, the, oh, yeah, uni. Yeah. Yeah, where we go to uni, eh? The social implication of going to good schools. It is super real, especially here. Yeah. And so I went to a private school for a year and a half and I didn't like it. So I transferred and I went to a SUNY. Which is fun. We, you know, we live in New York. Mm-hmm. Statistically, I'm Jewish. I probably went to a SUNY. <laughs> but in high school, I did not want to consider SUNYs because I thought I felt like it was beneath me. And obviously, looking back, I recognize how that's privileged. It's not beneath me. I learned more there than I did at my private school, which kind of anybody got in there. I mean, it was an art school, so like they don't really care about your grades. They just cared about your art, which is good, I think. But mm-hmm. we're, it was a weird place. But um, yeah, so I, I didn't want to go to a SUNY. And then I was like, what do I, who fucking cares? The, the name of my degree is computer art. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. And then the year after I graduated, they changed it to graphic design. And I was like, every time I say it, I'm like, yeah, I have a degree in MS Paint. But like none of that shit matters. Well, I got a, I got a BS. I have a BS in actually. business, and and it, it it's was a BS. lot more BS than business. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, I I opted for a BS instead of a, a BA because I was like, it sounds more fancy. Listen, on the same path, I I if I could give, I have a master's as well. If I could give that back, I I would do it in a heartbeat. I want it. You can have it. Thank you. You can just take it off my wall in the office. Here. Okay, I'll hang it in my desk. The whole thing is very. You hear that? I have a desk, not an office. Just, just you can have that office. Point out the discrepancy. Take that office. Let's do it. Let's make it happen. Okay. <laughs> it's, it, it, and it would be the biggest one and you would deserve it. No, yours is bigger. I don't have a door. That's That was your choice. You were supposed to get a door. It wasn't even going to be. It was going to be more like a decorative door. It wasn't even going to be a door door. A door door. It wasn't going to be like a close the door door. I wanted to have a true open door policy. Mm. How woke. We should get uh, beads. <laughs> oh. I just so funny you said that. Like the Bradys. Sure. The very Brady movie where Marsha and Greg are in the attic together and they just separate each other by beads, but then they have that like really weird, awkward, uh, like anyway. Vibe. Yeah. Anyway. They're just uh, step siblings. It's fine. Not weird. Not weird no, at all. No, no, no. Um, yeah, so she got beads. It is a very dark, circuitous, uh, nonsensical story. And what I what I always find fascinating about doing these is going back to that very first moment. And that's what I loved about this. And you know, I get I get uh, all giddy and prickly whenever I unearth uh, a, a yet another fucking situation where, at the formative stages of it, there's Uncle Fuck Nugget putting his two cents in, and people Everywhere. still fucking quoting it. It is amazing. The impact that this man had on our culture and our society. It's just, it never fails to astound me. But going back to that beginning and looking at the political wrangling, what this story is about, unfuckers, is is a system that wants to be something but is fighting against what it really is. And what it wanted to be was a true leader that was elevated above the rest of the world. We had this moment in time, but there was a part of our history that just refuses to acknowledge the plight of the working class and the working poor. 
It's not in us. It is really in our DNA that once we get something, we don't want anybody else behind us to have it. We, as Americans, close the door. We close the door on anybody seeking to get and, and, and utilize the same opportunities that we use to get where we are. It's a sickness, and it doesn't exist in other fucking parts of the world. Now, we were exporting it to, to, to many places in the world, sadly, but it true. if I had to identify a uniquely American mindset, it is that we just close the door behind us. And that is so deeply entrenched in the story. That's why I, I, I kind of loved unpacking it. And I am hopeful for the future, by the way. I am optimistic. I know we've got a turbulent road ahead of us, but I am optimistic because in this case, a lot of these structural changes are very doable. They're very attainable. So on that note, uh, I hope you enjoyed the flurry of content that we had this week. I enjoyed uh, show notes and putting that together. We, We went on and on and on a bit, but I thought there was some really good and fun stuff in there. Hopefully you checked out the topical cream that we dropped this week. It was all about the Indian residential schools report that came out through Secretary Deb Holland's office. Uh, Check that out if you have not. And please do, if you are interested in that subject, read through that report because it is a really deep and, and thoughtful look at Native history in this country and what we did to those children. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design maestro, Manny Faces. I'm the son of a college professor, so of course that means that I went to college for about 20 minutes. You know, the son of the shoemaker never has any shoes kind of deal. But I was just at Harvard lecturing, so I did all right somehow. My son went to college and then stopped and now got a job making more than I think I ever did already uh, in a field that only can uh, triple his salary probably in the next five years. So he did okay without finishing college. Uh, And uh, Mrs. Faces uh, also uh, says that her MBA is useless. That being said, congratulations to my other kids who did graduate college and it's doing well for them. Except for the, you know, not going to have any disposable income for the next 10 years part. So, yeah. Wow. Fucked. The show is lovingly produced by the great, powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, indefatigable 99. Remember, if you want to help me repay my student loans, it's <laughs> GoFundMe.com slash 99-Journey. <laughs> 99's Journey. Uh, I wonder if that's a, an actual URL. <laughs> You better check that shit before you edit this. Well, maybe we're going to help some random person who needs it. (laughs) Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. And I hope you enjoyed the Broadway theme here today. I I figured we would try to work that in to support that incredible intro that I just can't get over that Tom did. The show is hosted by Debt and distributed by BlackRock. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to unftrpod at gmail.com. Connect with us on social at unftrpod. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash unftr. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash unftrpod. The Debt Trap by Josh Mitchell will be in there. Get some native roasted coffee at unftr.com slash shop and read our essays on Substack because remember, it will always be free. That's it for this week. We'll catch you next week on Fuckers 99. I hope you have a, a wonderful weekend. You too. Bye. Bye.